All right, so Acts 15, the book of Acts is our series right now. We should be in this thing until um, about the end of May, I think. So we're, we're actually just, what are you doing, Dwayne? I'm always going to blame it on the sound guy. Um, it's my fault, probably. Uh, the book of Acts is, we're at the halfway point, or just a little past the halfway point now. So we are, um, we're looking at the history. This is what the book of Acts is. It's the history of the early church. It records uh, basically what happens from Jesus's resurrection and ascension into heaven, and then the next like thir- uh, 30 or so years um, of, of the first yeah, basically the first 30 years of, of the church in its, in its existence. And so what we're seeing in Acts is really a, a record of what Jesus did through his apostles and by his spirit in those first few decades. Um, so as we, as we look at Acts, it's important for us to know that this is, a, this is a book of history and it's telling us what happened. It doesn't always tell us exactly what that means. Uh, it's just telling us what happened. And, and yet we get to see how the Lord worked through the real issues of life in a fallen world, and the same kind of world we live in today. And as people who live in a world with sin in it and uh, waiting for the redemption of the world through Jesus's return, we, we recognize and need to recognize that conflict with other people, even other Christians, is going to be a part of life. It's going to be a part of life. And that's, that's the, the, what we're seeing happening in chapter 15. Um, so chapter 15 walks us through a couple of different points of conflict. Uh, one, we can clearly see uh, the resolution to, and one we don't see the resolution to. But, but as we work our way through this, we, we want, need to recognize that in the early church, in the beginning years of the church, there was a lot of conflict because there was a lot of different people coming together under Jesus. They were coming from a variety of backgrounds, a variety of cultures, a variety of ways of looking at the world. And whenever you have people like that uh, coming from different pos- positions and, and angles, you're going to have lots of disagreement. We all know that. We live in a country that's filled with that right now, right? We understand that. And that was what was happening fundamentally in the church. Uh, People are coming to Jesus from lots of different ways of life. And you primarily have two big picture groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. And they, they were coming from very different ways of looking at the world. The, the Jewish people were coming at Christianity from their, their understanding of the religious system with lots of structures, lots of rules, lots of regulations, with, with lots of laws that need to be followed. And that is going to be really butt up against the Gentiles who are coming from a much wilder system, pagan, uh, Roman, Grecan, Roman uh, world, and, and this is filled with immorality and idol worship and all kinds of crazy things happening. And yet Christians are coming together from these two contexts. And so it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that this is going to cause some issues. And that's exactly what chapter 15 shows us. Um, this passage shows us how the early church's leaders the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem primarily helped to settle some of the major questions uh, around what is foundational to the faith, foundational to Jesus and the gospel. And 
there were disagreements within that, but they had to come to some kind of a conclusion on what is absolutely essential. And chapter 15 shows us where they landed. And uh, thankfully, we can rejoice in where they landed by the Spirit's leading. So, so let's get to the passage. Let's look at verse 1. And uh, this is, um, is going to set up the, the context for where the rest of the chapter goes for us. It says, But some men came down from Judea. So Judea is, of course, the region of Israel. We would call that Israel, kind of the area around Jerusalem. They came down from Judea. Where they're coming down to is uh, Antioch, which is where Paul and Barnabas are. So that's up in Syria. That's kind of a, a Gentile region. So there, you got some men coming from Israel to Samaria, uh, not to Samaria, so, excuse me, to Syria, to Antioch. And they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, so that's bad news. Um, the, this is just fundamentally bad news, right? That's what any kind of religious system outside of the gospel and grace of God is. It's bad news. It's not good news. The word gospel means good news. And so here you have some men who are believers in Jesus, who are very convicted as Jewish believers that the only way to be saved by Jesus is for the Gentiles, the non-Jewish Christians, to become essentially Jewish Christians and to embrace the whole custom of Moses, including circumcision, which if you've read your Old Testament, you know that that is uh, that was the external sign that the, that the men in Israel belonged to the people of Abraham. And so it was kind of that external symbol. We, we would say baptism is the external sign of being saved uh, by, by Christ. It's not what saves you, but it's the display that Jesus has saved you. And, and so in the Old Testament context, it was circumcision. And, um, and so these men are coming there to say this to the brothers in Antioch. Well, Paul and Barnabas, who we read a lot about in the last couple chapters as they became missionaries to the Gentiles, are, are in Antioch at this point. They're, not, they're no longer on their trip, and they're back home. And so they are going to address this. Look at verse 2. It says that after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So Paul and Barnabas have a lot of problems with this and this view that you have to become uh, basically following the law of, the, of Moses to be saved. And, and Luke doesn't give us really any details about the content of their argument. They, he just says there was no small dissension and debate with them. So in other words, that's kind of another way of saying this was a big fight, a big fight. This was not like a little disagreement among friends, right? It's not like you prefer coffee, your friend prefers tea, and you're just like, okay, that doesn't matter. We're not going to stop being friends because of that. That would be really petty, and we'd all agree with that, right? That's th those kind of things happen all the time. It's like, well, you have your personal preferences, fine, to each their own. But that's not what's happening here. Paul and Barnabas are looking at this as a fundamental, consequential issue to the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. And so they can't just let this go, and they can't just sit by and let these false teachers, uh, these guys who are propagating a false understanding of salvation, go on and do this. So they have this big fight with them. 
And evidently it gets to a point where nothing's getting resolved. And so they decide they've got to go down to Jerusalem and let the elders and the apostles there help figure this out. So that's what happens. Verse three and four, it says, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So as they're traveling from uh, Antioch in Syria, they're heading south, although it always says you go up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is on a hill. But also there's that reverence for, you know, that's where God's temple was and all those things. So you always, as a Jewish person, always say you go up to Jerusalem even if you're traveling south. And they're traveling south, and we'd say they were going down to Jerusalem because they were heading from north to south. But they're going to Jerusalem, and as they go, of course, they're traveling by foot or by animal, uh, and so they have to stop and make some pit stops along the way. So they stop in Phoenicia, they stop in uh, Samaria, and as they do, they describe what God has done among them and the Gentiles. And then they get to Jerusalem, and they're welcome there, and Uh, Everybody's excited to hear what Paul and Barnabas have been up to for the last few years. Okay, so they get to Jerusalem, and this is where the conflict really ramps up. Verse 5 says, But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, the Gentiles, and to order them to keep the law of Moses the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So this is what we call, if you have a Bible that has headings, you'll see it's called the Jerusalem Council. This is the first time in the history of the church. It wouldn't, will not be the last. There, were, there have been many of these since this time. But this is the first time that the whole church comes together, Jews and Gentiles and everybody from as much as they can gather together to discuss a theological disagreement and problem with understanding how Christ saves people. And so you have a group of people who are arguing that it's necessary for the Gentiles to embrace Judaism and follow the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders are going to consider this. They're thinking through it. And, uh, and so here, here's what's happening. I find this really interesting it says in the, at the beginning of verse five, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up. So if you've read your New Testament gospels and you've read the stories of Jesus and the early stories in Acts, you know the Pharisees are not typically um, cool with this whole Jesus thing. He, they were really hostile to him and towards him. But uh, here you have an amazing thing. You have people described as believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. There are evidently Pharisees becoming Christians. In fact, Paul himself was a Pharisee who became a Christian, but is on the opposite side of this argument from them. But what I want to mention here is that they are described as believers. That's, that's intentional. They're not described as false believers. They're not described as unbelievers. They're described as believers. And so by all accounts, from what we can tell from the text, these men who belong to the Pharisee party 
were genuinely Christians who trusted in Jesus. They, they were genuinely saved. And, and that's something that we should recognize. And then secondly, we need to recognize that they were wrong, very, very wrong about this. So th- how does that help us? It helps us because we need to have a category in our minds where we can hold this tension that you can be a Christian and be wrong at the same time. I don't know that we have a category in our culture anymore for that. We need to recognize that there can be deeply wrong, wrongly held thoughts and beliefs on all kinds of things, and you can still be a Christian. Because as we're going to find out in this passage, salvation isn't dependent upon the works we do including the things that we may hold wrongly. Now, there are some fundamental things that need to be worked out, of course, and we'll, we'll get there. But here's the important thing. In an increasingly divided time in which we live, which is similar to the times that they lived, um, we need to recognize that there are Christians who can hold views that are very different from our own. And, and we shouldn't just chuck them into a category of, well, they're not truly Christians. We need, to, we need to balance this and have some understanding of what is fundamental, foundational, and what are things that we can be gracious towards. So I think that there is a category for a genuine fellow believer and for them to be wrong, or maybe even having some humility in ourselves and go, maybe we're wrong, and maybe we should think about some things. Now, you don't have to admit that you're wrong about things you know, know it to be right, right? But that's, there's something there. Okay, so the apostles and the elders are listening to the Pharisees defend their view. And verse 7 says, after there had been much debate. So now you've got people on both sides. Presumably Paul and Barnabas are arguing their case. They were kind of the, the, the whole you know, start of this in, in Syria. They were the ones that were fighting this issue to begin with. So they're probably defending their view. The Pharisee Christians are defending their view. And there's much debate. And after that, Peter, it says, stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will, and all the assembly fell silent. So here is the point where they've listened to every argument, they've listened to the the competing positions, and then Peter gets up. Peter is, of, of course, one of the apostles, one of the 12 apostles. He carries a lot of influence, as he should. Uh, he was kind of Jesus's right, you know, right hand in many ways, right hand from my perspective, um, your right hand. He's, uh, and, and he's obviously the lead guy in the church at this point. He's more or less what we'd call the senior pastor of the church. And so he's got some influence here and he gets up and kind of assesses the whole situation. And he's going, guys, don't you remember how 
uh, God used me to open the door to the Gentiles. Now he's talking about something that happened a few chapters back, which was where Cornelius, uh, this Gentile centurion Roman guy, calls Peter to come to his house and Peter preaches the gospel to him and his family and his friends and they become believers and the Holy Spirit comes down. We looked at that, that whole issue a few weeks back. And Peter's going, remember back then in the early days. So that presumes that there's been a lot of years that have gone by now uh, since that happened. And Acts, of course, runs pretty quickly through these things, but there's probably been a long time that's passed. So Peter's reminding them, hey, remember how God gave them the Holy Spirit? Remember how God gave to uh, the Gentiles his spirit and has made no distinction between us and them? and how God cleansed them by faith, and how he'll save them and us by grace. He basically gets up there, but then where he really hammers his point home is glorious. It's in verse 10. He says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? In other words, why are you trying God's patience? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples. So he, he's making his judgment call here, which is right, I think, and obviously I think it's right, that he, he is saying, what you're wanting to do is put a yoke, which is an in, instrument of burden on an animal that you would have on your farm to plow your field, right? You'd put an animal, a couple of animals through a yoke and tie them together and make the oxen uh, plow a field. He says, you're doing that by putting the burden of the law on the Gentiles, but where he absolutely slam dunks this thing is by saying that this yoke of burden on their necks that the, that the Pharisees want to put on these Gentile believers is something that neither, he says, neither our fathers, so our forefathers, nor we have been able to bear. I think that's an incredible, insightful humble of Peter to go, listen, you guys want the Gentiles to follow the law of Moses? How has that worked out for our forefathers? Could they do it? No, they could not. That's, you read your Old Testament and that's the whole thing. It's like these people stink at following the law. They can't do it. They're terrible at following the law. And that's actually the whole point of the law. It is an impossible standard of holiness that only God himself could attain. And that's why Jesus came in flesh and lived the law perfectly for us because we couldn't do it. That's the whole thing. And Peter's going, our forefathers couldn't do it. We can't even do it. Now you want the Gentiles to try to do it? This is crazy. That's, that's what he's saying, essentially. And, and this is, he's saying, you're asking them to do something that we can't even do ourselves. And then he says in verse 11, he basically brings the gospel down to one sentence. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. There is no works required for salvation. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus that saves us. The gospel is made clear that anyone and everyone who is who believes in Jesus Christ by faith, by trust in his finished work through the cross and resurrection, receives the grace of God to cover every sin. There's no works that must be done by our hands. There is no law keeping that has to be obeyed. There is nothing but Jesus. And after this, the whole assembly falls silent. 
You could hear a pin drop in that room, and that's because they were all just like, yeah, I mean, of course. And so they listened, verse 12, they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So they give some time for Paul and Barnabas to share what's going on on their mission. And then it says this, after they finished speaking, James, now this James is not James the apostle who is brothers with John. This is James who is brothers with Jesus. So James writes a letter of the New Testament, the book of James. He becomes a leader in the, in the church in Jerusalem, one of the elders. He's not one of the apostles, but he's one of the elders. And James was Jesus's half-brother, Mary's son, who did not believe in Jesus in his life, but after his resurrection, became a Christian and now has become a leader in the church by this point in time. Many years has gone by since Jesus's ascension. But James gets up and replies, saying, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, or Simon, or Peter, that's who he's talking about. I know it gets confusing with all these names. He's saying, Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name say the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment, James goes on to say, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them, to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And from ancient generation, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read, in every Sabbath, he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay, so James gives a little speech of agreement with Peter, but James takes a different nuance. He, he says, yes, Um, Peter is right to recount for us how God saved the Gentiles. But then he says, but also our Bibles say this too. He he goes back to the Old Testament and he quotes a couple of verses from the book of Amos, Amos 9, 11, and 12, which in that section says that all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So he, he points back to the Old Testament scriptures and go, look, God has always been pulling Gentiles towards himself. And there was a promised day when all of this would come to fruition. And we're living in those days through Jesus. And so that's where James goes. He takes it not just from anecdotal evidence of the time, but also looks at the sacred writings of scripture and says, the Bible agrees with this. And so then James, his, his conclusion is, is that here's what we should do. Put no burden on the Gentiles, but we should write them a letter and encourage them to abstain from certain things. And the list is pretty short. S- stay away from things polluted by idols, right? This was something that was very common in the Greek and Roman world with all the pantheon of gods and all the idols worship that was going on. He's like, stay away from that. That's not gonna help you love Jesus. Stay away from sexual immorality. 
That's not going to help you love Jesus. And then he has this really odd thing to us is stay away from what's been strangled and from blood. Um, And I think that's a, that's a reference back to the way back in Genesis with Noah, where God basically says to Noah long before the law was ever given through Moses, he says, don't eat things with, with its lifeblood. In other words, don't be disgusting. Okay. Just cook your food and be happy with it. And so, um, I think that's what's going on here. But basically he says, let's just encourage them with these things and otherwise let leave them to it. So that's basically what's, what, what happens here. If we look at verse uh, 22 and following, we'll read a good chunk here. It says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and he was one of the two guys that was up for replacing Judas, the, the first Judas who, who followed Jesus. Remember, there was Matthias and there was Barsabbas. And this, Matthias won the, the lots. You know, they threw the dice. And, but Barsabbas is chosen to go up and Silas, leading men among the brothers. So they send Barsabbas and Silas to bring this letter to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And here's the letter. The brothers, both the apostles and elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Yeah, I bet, because it didn't say you have to be circumcised. That would, that would make you rejoice. <laughs> All right, where did I, I just lost my place now. Okay, and Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they'd spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who they had, who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. All right, so that whole section shows us something very important, that God has protected his people from false teaching and from legalism. And, and it, but it's important for us to define legalism for a minute here, because legalism it can be thrown around as a word that just means you're telling me to do something I don't want to do. Um, but what legalism really is, is, is putting requirements on a person's life that is beyond the Bible uh, and telling them, if you don't do these things, you're not a good Christian or a Christian at all. And, and one of the best pictures of, of legalism that I've heard or analogies is from Larry Osborne, who basically says legalism is building fences around fences. And you have the fence of God's word the big, wide open pastures of God's word. There's not very much that burdens us in the gospel, but there are parameters for how Christians are called to live. That's true. 
But legalism comes in and builds a fence around that fence and says, now you got to live in this little space between fences. And that's what uh, Larry Osborne has helped me see. It's like, yeah, that's, that's the problem with legalism. It's not saying, it's not legalistic to say we need to listen to God's word and, and to the greatest extent that we can and through repentance when we fail, listen to God's word. That's not legalism. It is legalism to say, you've got to add these extra things that God's word doesn't put on your life in order to be a good Christian. Building fences around fences is the problem. And so as, as the, the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem send this letter to, to Syria and to the regions around it, to these Gentile Christians, they spread the good news that yes, there are things that they should do within their lives to be following the Lord Jesus and, and pointing people to him. There are parameters in their life, but it's not a requirement to follow uh, beyond those things just to say we have to, we have to earn our way to God. So it's good news and there's joy in it. But here we, here we see this really great resolution to the conflict. The Bible says that the church with one accord sent this letter, which means, which points us to this, that the Pharisees who were arguing their position before must have come around at some point and gone, you know what, it's okay. I think we, I think we agree with this now. There, there was a point in which that at least became an issue of uh, we'll, we'll sign our name to this and go with it. And so you see the resolution of this conflict through this working out of, of, the, of the problem and talking through it. And, and oftentimes that's good, right? And that happens and we can talk through things with people and it'll all work itself out as we do so. But in the very next section, short section, just a few verses, we see another conflict come up an interpersonal conflict, not a big wide church problem, but now a problem between two particular Christians that doesn't get resolved very peacefully. Look at what it says, verse 36 through 41. It says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So they'd been on a missionary journey for a couple years. They uh, worked their way through a bunch of cities. We read through those in 13 and 14. They've come back to Syria. They've been there for now a few years probably. Um, and Paul's going, hey, it's been a while. Barnabas, let's go back. Let's go visit these churches and these cities and see how everyone's doing. And they don't have email. They don't have phones. They've got to go and travel land and sea to, to see these people. And Paul's like, Barnabas, let's do it. So verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So this is something that happened back in chapter 13. We, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. Um, they bring this guy, John Mark, with them. He was their assistant. He was helping them. They get through Cyprus with him. Then they sail from Cyprus up to what is today Turkey, and they're in Pamphylia, and they've got to cross these mountains to get past Perga. And um, John Mark at that point looks at these mountains and probably some sickness that was going on. There was a good chance that Paul caught, caught malaria, uh, at, that, at this point as well, like there was some really tough things going on and John Mark is like, nah, not for me. I'm going home. And he leaves. 
So now, several years later, we don't exactly know what the timeline is here, but several years probably, Paul goes, hey, let's go back. Let's go see these guys. And Barnabas goes, okay, let's bring John with us again. Let's bring Mark. And Paul's going, no, we're not going to do that. That dude's a loser. He's useless. He was terrible. He left us. And he did. None of those things are probably untrue in the moment. But here's the tension. And verse 39 tells us this. There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to go to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria, Sicilia, uh, strengthening the churches. So this, this fight between Paul and Barnabas, two guys who had been partners in ministry, had gone on a years-long mission, risked their lives together for Jesus, are now wanting to go back to that same place. They both agree on that. But then at the suggestion that John Mark come with them, Paul goes, no way. And Barnabas obviously sees this as absolutely unreasonable. And we've got to bring John Mark to the point that these two guys split and go in opposite directions. That seems really crazy, actually, right? That that this guy probably made John Mark pretty uncomfortable in the process. Like, here's this guy who is very young and, and years before did a stupid thing and left, the, and left the, the mission early and didn't stick with it. And now this is all coming back years later and evidently Paul is just eaten up at the thought of bringing Mark with them. And so he sticks to his guns and, Peter, and Barnabas sticks to his guns and they just are going, whatever, we're out. We got to go separate ways. So who was right in that argument? Well, the Bible doesn't give us an answer. Likely, they were both wrong. Um, But it's not recorded what happens. This is a history. It's telling us what happened. It's not giving us insight into what we should think about this. It's showing us that in a real world, in a fallen world, there are things that happen that keep people from being in fellowship. And this seems like a very stupid thing to split over. But, it, but it's a lot of things that we split over are stupid things, right? Like we understand that. The things that can d- divide us as people can be really, really foolish. Churches have split over the color of carpeting that they choose. I mean, it, it gets wild out there. And like we can look back objectively and go, really? Why didn't Paul just say, okay, fine, I'll prove you wrong. He's going to be a loser again. Let him come. Or why didn't Barnabas go, man, if that means that much to you, fine, we won't take him. That's okay. Like nobody was willing to give in on this and they split over it. And that should make us sad a little bit because we see it in our own world too. But here's something that should give us a little bit of hope. It's not in this passage. It's it's, there's a glimpse of this in 2 Timothy. Uh, 2 Timothy I referenced last week as well because at the beginning of 2 Timothy, Paul uh, reminds Timothy of how bad the persecution was in the cities that we looked at him going to last week in chapter 14. But towards the end of this letter, in chapter um, 4, as 
he's giving his final instructions to Timothy and basically saying, hey, come, come, you know, to Rome, bring me some books to read, bring me some papers to write letters with, bring me a coat because it's cold in this prison cell, uh, bring some stuff with you. In verse 11, he says this, this very quick little comment that I think will encourage us. He says this, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. That's awesome, actually, to, to see how Paul after, now this, was, this letter was written probably 25 or 30 years after the event in Acts. And Paul's looking back on his life and, and coming to the close of it, knowing that the Romans are gonna take him out it's, at some point. He's in a prison cell awaiting execution And he asks specifically for Timothy to bring Mark. Barnabas is probably dead by this point. Barnabas was an older man at the time that they all did these things in Acts. Mark was a very young man. Paul's an old man now, and he's asking for Mark because he's useful. And I think that that little little word useful for me in ministry is probably getting at the heart of what was wrong in Paul's heart towards, towards John Mark. He probably thought, and his main argument was, that dude is useless. And in a sense, he was useless. He was dead weight on their first missionary journey. That's true. Paul wasn't wrong about that. But the fact that he held to the, that conviction so deeply the second time around, that he was will, unwilling to let Mark come with him, and now after years of reflection, he goes back and goes, no, I was wrong. I was wrong about Mark. He's useful. That's, that's actually an encouragement because it shows that Christians can reconcile over time. And I think we need to have the long view in our, in our conflicts. Okay, real quickly here. Let me give you a couple of things. We've looked at this. This whole section has been about Christian conflict. Disagreement about th- some major things, important things, things that need to be fought over, like what is the gospel, and an, ar- and an example of an argument that probably didn't need to be fought. But that's the real world, right? So how do we deal with this? How do we recognize this in our own lives? Well, first we need to recognize that the gospel is the central issue. What we believe about Jesus and how he has saved us is of the most important and fundamental issue that we can fight over, and we should fight for that. We should. That is a hill that's worth dying on. And that's what the early church did. And by God's grace and leading, brought them to the right conclusion. But there's a lot of arguments that we have over secondary things, tertiary things, things like John Mark, who is not even like, shouldn't even be on the list of things to really fight over. We've got these things in our lives too. It's not like every fight is a central issue fight. So how do we work through that? Well, there's a great little book called, by Gavin Ortland called um, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. And that book is primarily about how we disagree as Christians theologically with different things and how we navigate those things. But at the end of that book, I'm just gleaning from him. Uh, what I'm going to share with you is just f- from his book. Uh, but he basically walks through how we can walk through reconciliation as Christians in anything. And the, the first thing is this. He says, be honest. We need to be transparent about our convictions and our thoughts on an issue. 
And this is important for us because people can't read our minds. I know we want to believe they can. We know, I know we want to think that the person that we're in conflict with should just know what I'm thinking. They don't. And if you're married, you know that, right? You, in fact, whenever I do premarital counseling, some of you are, have been in my premarital counseling uh, sessions, and you know that we spend most of our time talking about how to fight well because that's most of what marriage is, is learning how to fight in a way that's productive, right? But be honest is the first thing. We've got to share what we are thinking because if we don't, they won't know what we're thinking. Secondly, he suggests this, be tactful. Being honest is not the same thing as saying everything all the time. Recognizing when it's appropriate to speak and when it's appropriate to be silent recognize them in the moment, like, do I need to say everything that I'm thinking right now or should I be selective? That's not, the, that's not lying. That's, that's being wise and tactful about how we approach a situation. Thirdly, be gracious. This is to go out of our way to show love and respect for the one we disagree with. We are Christians and we are known by our love. For, for each other and, by, and for Jesus. Sorry, guys. And so we need to approach every conflict with grace and love. And finally, he says this, put your trust in the Lord. God is sovereign. He's in charge of every situation. And every situation, um, he has a resolution for in some way or another. And he deeply cares for you and loves you and will guide you. So what this passage reminds us of in, in Acts 15 is that God loves us, that Jesus died to save us, that that's the central thing that we need to stand on and point people to. And we also need to trust in the Lord that, that his sovereignty will direct and guide us in the right ways. And if we're trusting in the finished work of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection as the only basis of our salvation, if we are there, then from there we can just follow where he leads, trusting his word and leaning on his spirit. All right, well, let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your grace, the grace of Jesus that saves us from our sins, saves us from every sin that we've committed past, present, and future. And we pray uh, that as you uh, minister to us now through your word and by your spirit, that you would Help us to navigate the, the things in our lives uh, as we live in this world of brokenness and we navigate things with other Christians that are at times difficult. Would you give us the heart of, of your son and give us the, uh, the, the love and compassion and willingness to hear that we need? We pray that you would point us to the finished work of Christ today and that you would point us to uh, how that leads us to reconciliation with each other as, the, as those things come up. And so we pray for your glory and honor in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.